0: Hello, I'm Stephanie Luo. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time, aka Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chit-chat with people who are like me scuba diver and chronic addicts to being water. During service time today, I sat down with Sharon Kwok for a cuppa as she was fresh off the boat from Raja Ampat and en route back to Hong Kong. Sharon is an artist well-known in Hong Kong public broadcasting and cinematic fields. As a conservationist, she unapologetically leverages her connections with public and private sectors to influence changes and support her conservation works. Her passion and commitment to marine and wildlife conservation is infectious. And it is totally cool to catch this bug. And uh, so it's started recording. I'm going to record this one just in case this one be of work and which they always do that to me.
1: Well, if this were my home, the whole outside would be one big cage. <laughs> are they? Well, I have lots of parrots. Ah, oh, yeah. I also do parrot rescue. But then it'd have to be a cage that I can open in case they want to fly and come back. <laughs> and did they actually go out? Do they recognize their way back? Not all of them. Only the ones I trained. Oh, no. parrots are not pigeons. Yeah. And also in Hong Kong, I live mid-levels and it's quite dangerous because we have over 800 raptors just on Hong Kong Island alone. Yeah. There's a crested goshock living in my garden. When he's around songbirds that are just wild, just hanging out, they all make a fuss so I know he's around. (laughs) He actually got, I think he got sick once. I think he ate some poisonous something or other, and he flew into a fencing in my garden. And I caught him. I brought him to Kaduri Farms, and he recovered. They sent me video of him flying off. And three months later, he shows up in my garden again. (laughs) I thought... Great, he's way out in the new territories, Is great, he should be happy, wild, wilderness, lots of food. Nope, he had to come back to the city. It's crazy. Hong Kong City is not the best place for wild birds, I don't think. But they're used to it. In fact, they are messed up. For example, there are a number of corvids that have restructured their time so that they seem to be waking up in the middle of the night. And these are not nightingales, they're corvids. My son jogs at 2, 3 a.m., he likes to jog at night, and he brings his dog. There's a lot of snakes in Hong Kong. So one time his dog got bit by a bamboo pit viper and uh, we had to bring him into the veterinarian. But I also noticed that because of the street lamp, there's a lot of birds awake at night. So we've messed up their time. They're completely just messed up. Okay. I think Singapore birds are a bit normal. You have a number of corvids such as starlings. Mm -hmm. I've noticed starlings around here and I love them. I think they're great. They're quite fearless. I was in some Chinese restaurant on a street corner that was open. So people eating inside, the birds coming in, they're just walking around, helping
0: themselves to leftovers. I think mean, it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think the distinctive feature I noticed is on Ultra Road. In the uh, early evening, you hear the birds just literally congregate along. Usually around 6 o'clock-ish,
1: when it starts to get dark, all the birds start making noise. Mm. My home is full. Okay. <laughs> It's a natural instinct. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. So everyone, no, no. come home. It's getting late. We're going to sleep soon. Come home. It's just, oh. yeah, that's what it
0: is. Sometimes I see hornbill oh, okay. flying in, and occasionally it would park just on the building right. I said, right. Yes. You would have the greater hornbill
1: here. The ones that fly near you, do you hear them when they fly? Yeah. <laughs> There's a sound when they fly, it's the sound of their wings. They okay. make this funny distinctive sound as their wings flap. If it's the greater horn And of course, the other one, the one that's highly endangered, one of the Society's Appendix 1 animals, along with rhino and panda, is the helmeted hornbill. That would not be here. That is very exclusive to certain areas. I hope people can work harder on conservation efforts for that bird because it's a stunning bird. Some people say it looks ugly. Some people say it's beautiful. I think it's unique. I actually have a puppet of one made, life-size. So the wingspan is bigger than the And the tail is as long as in the call. There's lots of wrinkles. And it's the only hornbill with a solid cask. Mm -hmm. It's so solid that the Chinese kill it to make jewelry. Okay. That's what they call red gold. Ivory is white gold and And rhino horn is black gold. So the three golds that the illegal trade talk about, red Mm -hmm. gold is that one. So it's a lot of money involved, but people kill the bird for that. It's, it's a very unique birth. You can't easily breed them. It's not like the Bali miner. You find them a nice aviary, put them in there, they'll sort it out. Even those are endangered, but it's doable. Mies Hill miner is another one, a big one. There's only, I think, three or four left in the world. That one should be breedable, but they didn't manage. But the Helmeted Hornbill, it requires a tree that's about the size of this table. It may be a little bit smaller, and the height needs to be around 60 to 70 meters high, where they actually nest and these are usually they have to find an old previously used hole so usually other animals like binturons Mm -hmm. they may have created a hole and every year other things use it because it's such a big bird it needs a very big space the males have a breeding dance it's not even a dance they fly at each other in the middle of the sky and they ram each other with their heads and you hear it's like it's two baseball bats and whichever bird just couldn't deal with it anymore, goes, and the female goes to the one that can manage it, basically can take all the pain or whatever. So they mate, and the female moves into this hole that they find. They clean it up. Then she goes naked. She loses all her feathers, and uh, she lays one egg, sometimes two, very rare. But during this time, they close the entrance completely and there's only one little hole. So it's relying on the male to bring food back. If the male is hunted, if he dies, the whole family dies.
0: It's very much monogamous
1: relationship. Yeah. So this so this has been going on for some time. It's very stressful because the whole thing should not need to get to this point. I think the problem is the buyers are not educated. They don't know what they're buying. Many years ago, I used to source ivory and precious gems for my mother. She owned a jewelry shop in San Francisco. So I bought ivory for her. I could tell if it's Asian elephant or African, just by looking at it. Cause that, that was my job. But the first time I came across hell hornbill cask, it was carved into Guanyin's face, beautiful workmanship. And I thought, this is interesting. What is it? I was a teenager. And the person said, oh, it's something from La Bird. It looks like a crane. They're not endangered. It's just beautiful, but it's quite rare. You should buy it for your mother. It's her birthday coming up, that sort of thing. And I bought it. And that was many years ago. I'm 52. Now. And I was like 18 when that happened. So when I got involved within working for IUCN, pushing endangered species, things like that, it came across my information about hornbills. And I learned about them. And then I realized what I had. And I got quite angry. And so I asked my mother if I can have it back. And she had put diamonds around it and everything as well. Yeah. So I, I took it back and I bring it to school because I show kids and talk about it. never buy this. I was duped into buying it. People who sell you things, really, the only goal is to make money. It's possible that if they were educated properly, they won't do it. But they probably come from a low line of people that live like that. It's like fisheries. You talk to them about certain fisheries collapsing, sh- certain species disappearing. Oh, no, it's never going to happen. Why is it going to happen? My great-grandfather was doing it. Bullshit, it's not going to happen. If it were going to happen, it would happen before. That's what they say. Yeah. But it, then it happens. And when it happens, oh, really? I guess it can happen.
0: Actually, that reminds me, we got introduced to each other, I think it was about 10, 11 years ago. We were doing the Shark Savers campaign, Yeah. Say No to Shark Fin Soup. And I think that was the time when I actually start to learn more about the statistics on the sharks, things, trade and everything, how that affects the ecosystem. And it's all boiled down to a historical, passed down, symbolic this is All of that, again, pardon the French, but all of that really is bullshit.
1: Even if it were a part of culture, which it isn't, and even if it were, I wouldn't be proud of having that as part of my culture. But even if it were, people continually change. We need to. If we don't change, we're going to end up in a planet with biodiversity damaged to such a point by us Mm -hmm. that we won't survive. Now, life will probably go on, but will it include human beings or not? That's a different thing. Yeah. Who knows, life may change to such a point in the future that there's something eating plastics and surviving, who knows? But what are we doing? Are we really concerned enough and responsible enough about doing something for our future generations? I think it's very important. For me, it started with basically a love of animals. As a child, I was one of those that could follow an ant for hours to see what it did. Oh, it went back to the nest. Oh, it's moving food. Oh, maybe if I put a rice here, see what it does. So you notice there are children like that. I was one of those. And for me, the conservation path has been riddled with a lot of questions and issues that I had to resolve even within myself. Cause we were taught certain things growing up. Okay. I was brought up in a family that wouldn't think twice about eating shark fin or anything else. right? And most of us were. So what makes us take the change? Education. So I think at this point in stage, it's vital for us, for the planet, for our future to somehow manage getting the right information to the next generation and onwards. I think for older people, elders, to get them to change sometimes might be, it's either impossible or too hard and really is it going to make a lot of difference. Probably not. If they have one meal at home, in hiding and they eat shark fin, okay, it's 10 bowls of shark fin. So nature can cope with that. Not that I agree with it, but the point now is to deal with things in such a way that we don't wipe things out. People are still taking sharks from the oceans at unprecedented rates. We think that even though our work has managed to cut shark fin consumption throughout the South of Asia by 90%, sounds great. Wow, we did it. Yes and no. We've changed mindsets. There are less people ordering shark fin for banquets, especially weddings, because the younger generation, they know better now. But it's the traders. They think that, well, shark fin is something that can store indefinitely. We can put it away 100 years from now. They can still cook it. It's dried. It's a product that they can store indefinitely. So they're banking on possibly extinction. Mm. This goes the same for the people dealing in ivory and many other things. They ban corn extinction because if something is extinct, then they can sell it really. Because right now things are, certain legislation is in place because we want to protect the remaining living of whatever species. Yeah. When everything's gone, they'll make a lot of money.
0: It's actually just really disgusting. <laughs> and the business definitely is the power for changes. Yeah. They can change for the better. Yeah, They also can change for the worse. Before we go more into the conservation, I want to ask you about diving, something more fun. I have found that diving is a nice icebreaker when you meet people. Well, you happen to be talking to another diver, yeah. Yeah. You could just meet the person like a second ago and ended up having a very inspirational, insightful conversations that yes, you, you yes. walk away with something. Not necessarily just diving itself. It could be like your work on the conservations and the... Yes, yes. Underwater, on land... And I mean, the sky, okay. yeah. what was your last memorable dive? That was a few days ago. <laughs>
1: I just got back from Raja Ampat. It was almost two weeks of unforgettable diving, four dives a day, at least. I went from the farthest north to the farthest southern side of Raja. We're all divers. I don't really need to elaborate. We know what to expect. But for me, I think there was a little breakthrough because I tried to avoid underwater photography. Because we all know that is like a bottomless pit. And you might as well forget about there goes your money, really. So you could easily spend as much on a setup as a car. And and some of those cameras, hard to say no to. They're really sexy. So I avoid all that. So I try to just stay awake. But the thing about diving for me is I enjoy meeting all these underwater creatures. And I want to keep my memories of meeting them. Mm -hmm. So... What better way than to take a picture? So I went there with my little dinky Olympus. I actually managed to get a very good picture of a pygmy seahorse with us this time. It's a good little camera. Come on, of course, if you compare to the big guys with their big, it's like a shopping cart that they're bringing down. Okay. You can't compare to that.
0: Yeah. For point and shoot, yeah. the quality of pictures that come out of it is actually incredible. Aside looking at the underwater, what else did you take on? There were times going on
1: land, or checking out old caves. Down south side, there were some areas where people have buried people in ledges and with skeletons just sitting around. These are very old. You know how there's all these little islands and some of them are tiny. Mm-hmm. So it's just off the water by about maybe 8, 10 feet. And if there's like a hollowed out little cave or a ledge, no one really knows what that's about anymore. The person I went with, his name is Eddie from Avila, and mm. he's the uh, captain of Pendito. In fact, he's the first liverboard in Raja. He actually built his boat by himself. It was all hand built. He hired a crew. They were chopping away. I saw the video. I was just amazed, the Mm -hmm. whole thing was just hand built, Mm -hmm. so stayed on this thing. And because he's lived there for 30 years, he's really seen the area. And a lot of these places are just in his head. He doesn't even put it down. I think finding someone like him who really knows these areas is important. Otherwise you won't get
0: to see them. That's all there is to it. Did he share anything about what he has observed in the last 13 years in, in that region? Oh, plenty. The biodiversity must have so well, through different faces. Things
1: have disappeared, but not completely. And of course, we both are keen on conservation issues, and we've been talking a lot about that. And it's depressing, but one mustn't give up hope because we're looking at what we still have. And it's actually quite resilient. If we get educated quickly though, if we give things
0: a chance, it'll come back. So really, we have to wake up. Yeah, we do. If I remember correctly, there is a, a shark sanctuary in Raja Ampa or Deerbaum. There are a few, and there are a number of marine protected areas as well. They've been set up definitely in the last 10 years. Have you come across any reports about how they have progressed? To be honest... What
1: I saw was not pleasant or encouraging because these areas, they are what they are. They couldn't recover unless we look after them. When you get down the food chain of government, it boils down to, are things being policed? Are people observing the rules? In Hong Kong, there are rules and regulations and people do observe them as long as they have to. If there's no one policing, they'll still go into marine protected areas. And uh, certain areas where we were, people fishing, they weren't supposed to. But if you ask them, if you complain, oh, he happens to be the cousin or the brother or the son of whoever's in charge, then they do what they want. But that's basically what's still going on. So I think people need to really feel their responsibility stronger.
0: You have a conservation and education foundation, Aqua Meridian. Yes. I've seen from your social media posts, there are lots of different projects. Yes. What are the key focus? My biggest problem is there's only one me and there's too much I want to do. And on top of that, there's
1: too much that really needs to be done. It's not simply my wanting to do it. It's what I see needs to be done. And I'm quite happy to get others involved or inspire other people to go and do it because I can't do everything. I'm getting run down because of the two past years and the whole COVID thing. I've been stationary in Hong Kong for quite some time. That has made me much more aware of what's been going on with some of Hong Kong's local pet trade, and uh, namely parrot. So I think COVID has affected Hong Kong people quite differently. They've been getting more pets. And a lot of them have chosen to get parrots, but also a lot of them haven't learned enough before getting a parrot. So there are some main points. And uh, Arthur Meridian actually is getting involved with parrots in Hong Kong. We intend to help educate people because people sell parrots. Their job isn't to educate you. Their job's to make money, sell you the bird. If it dies, great, come back, buy another one. Often they're like that. For me though, each bird is very important. Parrots live a very long life. They're very intelligent animals. We can't treat them like, we don't treat chickens very well, for example. Not that's a good thing. But honestly, parrots, we're looking at something with a lifespan that far exceeds a dog or a cat. Something that's extremely emphatic. Many parrots, if their owners, pass away. They would go into rut, they would pluck their feathers, Until there's only a head full of feathers left, their whole body's like naked, especially mullican cockatoos are quite known for doing that. They get very emotional over things. So people that consider getting a parrot, need to consider, first of all, do they want to commit to a pet that lives that long? Secondly, if something happens to them, will there be someone else to take over? Like I'd make sure my son could deal with it, for example, or something like that. And then can you manage something that makes a lot of noise? Now, you can train your parrot not to be too noisy or maybe avoid certain hours of making too much noise, but a parrot is a parrot. They are essentially pretty wild at heart. See, even though we've been keeping parrots for thousands of years, African greys, for example, but essentially they haven't been changed from their wild counterparts. If you take a captive-brick African grey and you don't coddle it much, you raise it in such a way that it could be release back into the wild, it will be a successful release they can manage. It's not like a dog that we've hybridized and bred and changed so much, or certain cats. These are essentially still animals that are basically similar or same as their wild cousins. So you're dealing with an animal that has all of these instincts. They make noises. They need to call out to each other. They need their flock for comfort and and companionship. You can't provide them with other birds you provide them with yourself and your family you give them time you need to train your bird if you keep a bird with yourself all the time and you don't bring it out you can do that but you might end up with a bird that isn't well socialized might end up biting strangers and when a parrot means it and they bite it's a serious bite (laughs) they're basically Flying pliers. <laughs> it's a very strong bite if they intend to. Parrot owners need to ensure that they have basic training of their birds. Now, also, would you happen to have any people at home, any family members that have allergies to bird feathers? There's certain things that you have to consider. Do you have space per bird? For me, I think it's okay if people live in an apartment at night when they sleep. They put the bird on a perch next to their bed and they sleep or in a cage near them and they sleep in a daytime or when they're out and about, they take the bird around with them. And I think this is a good way because these birds basically need a lot of intellectual stimulation. They can't be bored. They're like three or four-year-old children. They cannot be bored. They play until they're tired and then they sleep. So you're dealing with something like that. Do you have the energy? Do you want to? Now, if you've decided, okay, you might be able to do that, then you study up. On which specific species? Some are larger, some are simply bigger and need more space or could damage things a great deal more. Oh, and they do damage things. Parrot owners generally do have damages in their home. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, they forage, it's their instinct. To stop them, rather than scolding your bird or teaching them not to do it, which you're really not supposed to, you give them enrichment tools, lots of toys for them to destroy, and they will. So, you get them more.
0: <laughs> Hearing what you just say, it's appeared to me that we humans, to a certain extent, especially for people who actually decide to have pets, most of the time, I think it's driven by the need to have some connection with something. And the motivation is more to satisfy or benefit themselves rather than the, the animal itself.
1: I don't think it's a bad thing. Whatever motives fades a person to get an animal initially may not be a bad thing. The good and bad counts when the person doesn't look after the animal. So some people may happen to across a dog on a freeway, pick it up. They've never owned a dog before. They never thought about owning a dog, but then they become the best owner. So it's not really the process or the reason of why you're getting the animal, but What actually happens to the animal is more important, I believe. Parrots get very attached to their owners. Like I'm on this trip, my two favorites that are always with me, one's a large green-winged mccall, the other's an African gray I drove them off and left them with a a friend that can manage because I can't trust my husband to manage. He wasn't an animal person, but you you marry me, it's a package deal. (laughs) But he's got his own little parrot that he loves a lot now, which is wonderful. Uh, but he can't deal with the bigger birds. So I made sure to take them to someone who knows how to deal with a parrot that may be depressed or anything that might happen to him when I'm away. So it's only like less than a month. I'll be seeing them again. We'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, you have to think of alternatives. Parrot owners must think of times if they need to go away. Where can they lead this animal? I think that's very important.
0: If we were just looking at the uh, relationship between human and animal, like a also scuba dino with when we go underwater, you respect the fact that you're in that world. Yes. You don't belong in that world. You also hear stories where over a period of time, we keep encountering the same species and it form some kind of bonding. The same thing when we bring that back to land, when we have pets, like Paris as an example. They are definitely a highly intelligent bird, and and I love the way you describe it. Think of them as three, four year old kid that it's time for you to educate them. They are very, <laughs> <They laughs> you well, and you have to play with them. It's also quite important to think of it as a relationship it has to be mutually beneficial for the pet on there as well as for the pet because it can't be just one side well that's the
1: way it should be yeah okay (laughs) it's the way it should be but not everyone can manage that i'm going to start working on education on that front and hopefully we'll bring about some good
0: changes but not just for parents though i think it's for all the pets in general
1: well the Motto for my group really is uh, love nature and respect life. It's about everything. For divers, there are those instructors that say, oh, you mustn't touch anything. Oh, you mustn't, you know, go near anything. I'm sorry, I can't. I have to go near something to get a macro shot, you know. (laughs) I I try not to touch things, but sometimes things touch you. One of the ladies I admire in the marine conservation field that I had the privilege of meeting is Valerie Taylor. She's lived quite an interesting life. She started out being a spearfishing champion. How does that make a person want to go into conservation? Many years ago, and she's not a young lady at all. Life was very different. We treated the ocean and marine life like it was an unlimited credit card. You can use it as much as you want. It's unlimited. So we found out that's not true. And Valerie, she has filmed a lot of things. In the past, of course, so you can Google Valerie Taylor online and look for old footage on YouTube. And you'd find that she used to handle lots of animals. But what it was is the animals came and made friends with her. So there is a difference. Like you see something spawning or there's something underwater doing something. You don't go in and disrupt them. But like, for instance, one time I was diving and there was a, a small little wrasse that decided it was curious about me. And rasses get that way. So it followed me from a whole tank of air. Believe me, I tried to make it last. (laughs) So it was just following me. It it followed me everywhere. It came up to my mask and it would pick my mask. I move forward, it would back up. I back up, it would move forward, it was playing with me. And if it was a dog or a cat, I would have brought it home. (laughs) It was the cutest little rats. In situations like that, we just feel we're blessed. With this magic, but it's not something that we can go and make happen. You can't go and force it. You're not supposed to go and handle these animals because that could hurt them. One time I was diving in Taiwan and the south of Taiwan is beautiful. It's got a lot of wildlife and the water is crystal clear for meters. And you can spot a turtle coming at you from like... Just a long way away. So when I went diving there that time, I was at uh, a little island called Xiaoyuqiu, and uh, I was experiencing one of the most shocking situations I've seen in my life. So there was this little dive shop with a few gung-ho young guys, all tanned, and yeah, I'm the dive master, I'm the dive guide, and I will train you, all that. There were other people that went into their shop that wanted to learn to dive. These people did not know how to swim at all, and they wanted to experience diving. And they said to them that this is possible. They said, okay, sit and I will teach you how to use the breathing equipment. And this is called a BC, this is a mask and you breathe this way and that taught them how to use this. What they ended up doing was they didn't give them fins. A dive guide would pick them up so they'd get them underwater from the shore. I was watching all this in shock. They would pick them up by the tank and bring them to a coral outcrop where they would crawl around because they had no fins, breaking the coral and pulling little shrimps out of cracks and cracks crevices. And these shrimp were losing their claws just so that they could take a picture underwater with a shrimp. Haha, <laughs> I'm underwater taking a picture of a shrimp. Now this is utter disrespect for wildlife. This is not the way it can or should be done. I understand these guys were probably trying to start a business and run a business and they need to just make some money, but there are rules and regulations in place for good reason. So if you love the ocean, and I assume anyone going into that business should, then there are certain things you cannot do. If these people wanted to dive, tell them to go learn to swim first and do it the right way. Because one little dive like that isn't going to do anything for anyone other than having a little selfie with a shrimp. What else will it do? It's not going to inspire them to greater love of the oceans. We try to get people wet. We all do. We want to get everyone diving. Now, for me, one of the main reasons is, you see, it's much easier to get people to help with conservation efforts of land-bound animals, like pangolins, like elephants. So These are animals on land that are charismatic and easy to sell. But when you try to talk about marine conservation, for a lot of people, it's something that's out of their comfort zone. They don't want to deal with it. To them, a fish is food. Seafood is seafood, spelled S-E-E. They don't have that love or connection with the ocean that would help them appreciate this is part of their world, and it's their world, and they need to look after it too. That if they throw a piece of garbage, it might end up there. It might be killing the sea turtle or that whale. So I think educating people to look after the ocean starts with, yes, getting every child to swim, and step by step. It is very important. In this day and age, how could you have a kid and the kid not know how to swim? We're so privileged now. It's not yeah. that
0: hard to go to a swimming pool and train your child. I think this is a very serious matter because if you think about it, the ocean the represents 50 to 70% of the planet earth. There's so much of unknown there. And then because it's the most unnatural place for human to go in, we cannot go in without donning any gear on us. We have to go in with our BCD tank. We can borrow a submersible, (laughs) but it's quite expensive hobby. It's a bit like, a bit like
1: joining (laughs) Ferrari. But we actually need to do that. You think about it, how much money we funnel into going to space, which I do believe is necessary too, in the long run,
0: but we haven't even finished discovering what's in our backyard. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And the irony is the astronaut, they all have to be trained as scuba diver. Yeah. The <laughs> <But to> training <laughs> is underwater to operate on whatever they need to do in the space. Yeah. So there's so much that the underwater world can actually really educate us. It's not just about biodiversity, it's about everything in life. Well, the good thing is, like you said, we don't know everything
1: there is to know about the oceans yet. Yeah. So hopefully there are still many areas that we haven't damaged yet and that could help the rest recover so other than parrot what other pros that you have what we normally do before covid so education via many means and legislation we work with governments or we push the governments to do things in hong kong we are able to have peaceful protests. I do mean peaceful. This is little kids with their artwork saying, save the sharks, not tear gas and scary stuff. Okay. So I used to do a lot of that. I'd go into Ledge Cole and I would voice out and try to get certain legislation passed, such as uh, better protection for the area where the turtles used to nest and lay eggs. Eh? Mm-hmm. A lot of rich people bring their yachts there over weekends. Mm-hmm. This needs to stop. We've gotten the legislation through already. No, it's policing. Education wise with children, I do a lot of school talks. I do all age groups from little tiny ones to university kids. Now the tiny ones, I love sharing fun stories, such as the one time I was diving and a whale shark pooped on me. Kids love talking about poo. And they all laugh, even you're laughing, there's a child in her. When you talk to kids about poo, everyone laughs and it's wonderful because It's not always jokes, because when I do talk to them, I work with uh, a photo collage, and sometimes it could be a photo of a mother elephant that was killed by poachers, Mm -hmm. and the baby's sitting next to it crying. So after talking to them about that very sad thing, I would then talk about Mm pool to get them happier again. Mm -hmm. I I feed them all this information, which I'm sure they remember, Mm -hmm. because it's given to them in such a way. It's emotional, and and they go home, they talk about it, Yeah. So they remember it, hopefully, and they'll do something about it when they get bigger. Most importantly, I hope that I inspire them so that they become more interested. They can't learn everything from me. Lord, no. But if I could start them on the path of being interested, who knows? They
0: might be a wonderful marine biologist someday or or a scientist. Who knows? Just planting the seed and hopefully as the seed grows and then they will see the difference and behave differently from the, the older generations yep. and the, the changing the mindset. I think that's really important. Children do change adults' minds. Yeah.
1: One time I remember I was at a banquet and this was quite a few years ago, but we were working on finish with fins in a big way. It was a wedding banquet where they did serve shark fin. I was sitting at the table. I knew that they were going to serve shark fin, so I told the people to give me, like, corn soup instead. When all the food arrived, there was a little girl there, she was six years old, and she was given a bowl of shark fin, which she refused to eat. She was a very quiet child. I didn't know this child well, but she just sat there. She wouldn't eat. The parents were getting a bit embarrassed, and the parents were trying to get her to eat. Like, you're embarrassing us, you're embarrassing the host, why won't you eat your dinner, blah, blah, blah. And push comes to shove, the child got too much pressure, finally she broke down in pride. and she said. I made a pledge at school that I couldn't eat sharks in, and we're killing too many sharks, and the ocean is dying. Wow, that was brilliant. So, that's a real story, and what well, we do make a difference.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's lovely to create uh, yeah. um, stories like that as a feedback. Do you bring your animals to school for the talks? Oh, I do. get interact
1: with Of course, I do. I have a very big lizard that I bring to school. So he's a Tegu. He's about uh, four feet long Well my parents go to schools with me. Yeah, they do. But they also have a spider too. It's a big black tarantula. He doesn't bite because he's used to handling. Mm-hmm.
0: So how do children react to them?
1: The thing is, there are a lot of children born with an innate love for animals and nature, but sometimes they may be living in an environment that doesn't allow them to keep pets or they may have a parent or parents. That are scared of animals don't want them or whatever. Some of these kids may initially start out being scared of things, and then you talk to them, small groups, let them slowly come over and meet the animals, pet them, touch them, handle them, and they realize that there's nothing to be scared of. Of course, you tell them that you can't go up to strange animals and do this. There are. Spiders that are poisonous, most of them will hurt you because they feel threatened by you grabbing them. So teach them how to handle them too. You don't just go and grab a spider. You let it come onto you. The lizard is just a cuddly, fat lizard. So the kids just go and play with them. But there's snakes that are venomous. Mm -hmm. So you have to let them know you can't go up to any strange animal, even if it's someone else's pet. You have to ask the owner first, but it allows them to feel a connection with other living beings, and that might start something. Yeah. And at the same time,
0: respect the boundary as well. Yeah. That's a good sentiment. <laughs> so I've got this question for you. Like you said earlier, there's so many things you want to do. Think about a like butterfly effect. Say you have a magic wand and you can use it only once. And then you just swing at one particular issue. If you get that addressed, everything else will shift. So what would be that one thing you would like to address with the magic wand? The human population. Okay, that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think we are out of control. Think about it, all of the issues that we're facing now is because there's too many of us, right? So if there's less of us, but we aim for a higher quality of living rather than more of us with due respect to nature, but even if we had demands on the oceans, even if they wanted to eat shark fin soup, if there's much less of us, nature can cope with it. The biggest issue now is there's too much of us, and the demands keep increasing. And the people that want to make money, life is tough. They just do whatever they can to make ends meet. So they make up their sales pitches. One of the biggest issues now, of course, is China's got money. And the people selling things in China, they make up stories to sell in. So, yeah, population. <laughs> You can't pick one species or one issue. There's too many issues. But if I had to pick one issue, yeah, think about it. There's much less of us. We wouldn't have all these problems. In the 1970s, did we ever think that fisheries would collapse? Did we ever have dead zones of the oceans? They were studying Antarctic toothfish and Patagonia toothfish. There was no such thing as Chilean sea bass. That's made up. The fisheries didn't have to think up new and sexier ways to go and harvest more of the ocean until things get to a point where they can rebound. All right, we need to learn to basically watch the guideline and take only what we can so that it's viable. Right now, it's not sustainable. Sustainability isn't just a pretty word that companies tag on to their companies like, oh, we're doing sustainable stuff. It's a real thing. And when there's too many human beings on the planet, it's very hard
0: to be sustainable. Definitely, there's a massive climate emergency going on. And if we're looking at the 2050 net zero as a target, literally we have just a little bit over two decades to go to redress what has been accumulated in the last century. is pretty tall order and there's definitely things needs to be done. It's been going on for a long
1: time already. If you attend some conferences like fisheries conferences, it's quite depressing, but we have to face a reality. There is such a demand. In the end, how are we going to marine conservation? How are we going to control fisheries not collapsing in the future and all that? Well, it's human demand. It's the way we eat. So it's not just shark fin. It's so many things. Tuna, cod, anything that can't be aquacultured. And even when things are aquacultured, do we stop and question where do we get the feed that we use for aquaculture? All right? Is it bycatch? Because Lord knows, bycatch is just wasted stuff. How are you feeding our pigs? Pigs are one of the largest consumers of marine products. Do the homework. It can be very depressing. I think people that go into conservation, Go in with an open mind. Make as much difference as you can because every little bit does count. And hopefully in the end, it adds up to something that can um, keep life going on the way we want it to.
0: (laughs) You have chosen a lot of thought-provoking points for people to hopefully start more dialogue and constructively. You have just been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Sharon Kwok, a passionate conservationist. Through her foundation, Aqua Meridian, she has been making the difference for the next generations through education and constructive dialogues. With more people joining her collectively, more impact can happen and more climate emergency can come under control. Please feel free to visit Aqua Meridian, the org, and reach out to give her your support. Surface Time is negatively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at surfacetimechat.com.